In the bonus room, I talk with Alan and Ray about their many teaching experiences and get their take on how students at Yale differ from students at Juilliard. You guys have had fantastic teaching careers. Uh, Alan, you just retired from Yale. You were there, I think, 31 years? 30, it turns out. I always thought it was 31. but Okay. And before that, count. you were at Indiana, <laughs> I think? I spent seven years in Bloomington, yeah. Okay. And before that, Eastman? Well, before that, it was all... It was what we called the floating professorships. That's what the guys in the New York Quintero has called it. Floating professorships where, you know, we were still basically working in New York, but, you know, John and Nagel taught at the conservatory in Boston. Toby did some too. Uh, uh, I always taught at the Hart School. Uh, I did that for 11 or 12 years. And then a couple, three years at School of the Arts in Carolina before Ray went there. And then... Uh, um, Eastman for three years. I never wanted to teach more than two days a week, so I would only travel one day. So I would teach in New York City School or Hartford, which I could drive to, and then maybe one other day. But, you know, I was single. I didn't have a family. Uh, I was not too conscious about security. And so I, I, by those two days, I'd have maybe a little health care, combination of the union, one thing or another, a little bit of retirement. And uh, I didn't have to take a steady job. So the last steady job I did was a Broadway show in 1965 or 6, I guess. And after that, I managed to avoid, <laughs> you know, I'd do six weeks with Joffrey Ballet or, or something like that. But I could, I could make a living just doing what I wanted to do. And, but that was possible in New York in those days. And when I left New York in 82... I could kind of see the handwriting on the wall so that when that teaching job, I was taught, I knew what college teaching was like. It was no big shock to go to Indiana. Indiana was a little bit of a shock, but it was not really <laughs> the job. It was a terrific job, you know, and it was fine. And I would have stayed there except the job at Yale came along and gave me a chance to live up here in Berkshires. And so, you know, I, I gave that up. But, but, uh, it was just, you know, I was just very lucky. It was a great time to be in New York. And and, and uh, the last Broadway show I did lasted six months, and I was totally bananas by the end of it. I absolutely couldn't deal with it. So that was the end. I just subbed after that, which was a lot more fun. I could, I could sub two or three, uh, you know. So for me, it was it was time to get out, and 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 I could stay. The New York Quintet was still active when I went to Indiana, just the the last year or two, and Calliope was still quite busy. In fact, we had a residency in the city, so I was coming back in. You played over at the church on Park Avenue with us a time or two, didn't you, Ray? No, maybe. Yeah, yes, I think I we dragged yeah. you in with the Cornetto once or twice. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And so, you know, I could I could stay in those groups and, and go somewhere else. And uh, I had, uh, had kind of done what I was going to do in New York, I thought. And uh, so I, I didn't have a family again. I just uh, went out there and kept a lot of things, a lot of things going. But the record day business, which was never a big part of what I did, but that was dying. And uh, so it was time to get out. I had no, you know, best thing I did was give up my apartment in New York and, once I walked out that door, I knew I was never moving back to the city because I couldn't afford to. <laughs> but Indiana got me out of New York, and uh, that was good in a way, you know. And then the job in New Haven came along, and I had this house up here in the Berkshires. So you know, I, I gave up a full-time job to come back to a part-time job, but it was, it was a good move. 
Ray, how long have you been at Juilliard now? It's 30 years now. 30 years, um, wow. Yeah. Uh, and of course, before that, I did, uh, you know, when Alan would leave a job, then I would take the job. You know, so <laughs> whatever. I just followed Alan around for a little. But um, he, he's right about North Carolina. But when I took, I ended up teaching for 24 years in North Carolina, uh, you know, commuting down in the morning, teaching all day and come back in the evening. Um, and then, you know, I did Hart for a few years. Uh, I did the Manhattan School for a few years. But basically what happened in the late 80s is, um, so the, the ABQ took, got this residency, which was a, uh, you know, great. It was a fabulous thing. And along with being in residence, we were all faculty members. And over the following several years, um, I started to have students at, at, uh, at Juilliard, um, started to kind of oversee some things there a little bit. Uh, and then I was offered to be the chair of the department, which uh, along with being chair of the department came the, uh, so at, for that time I was still at the, uh, at the Manhattan School. But um, the deal was, you know, this is a full-time job at Juilliard and we don't want you at other places or certainly no place nearby, <laughs> you know. So um, that was part of the deal, which was perfectly understandable to me. And, I'm, uh, you know, was no question that to, to be the chair of the department was something I was excited to do. And, and you know, um, there were no preconceived ideas about what the job would be as chair of the department. I mean, I you know, remember meeting with Polisi and Polisi saying, you know, I, I think you would be a good chair for the department. I'm not really sure what your job would be. So why don't you tell me what you think the job would be? <laughs> so, you know, it was kind of an invite like, yeah, all right, let me give this some thought. And, uh, and at the time he was starting to get put chairs in place. So it wasn't, uh, uh, it, it was the direction the school was going. Uh, so I kind of came in with a proposal of, well, I think we could do better in this way, but I don't think we should touch this. And, uh, so before I know it, I had a, a proposal and, uh, well, I've been chair for over 25 years, something like that. Uh, and the, in some ways, the job, uh, in some ways, it was a lot easier when I first started doing it um, because the responsibilities I had were, were not nearly what they've become over time. As I've become a senior faculty member, I'm serving on more and more committees. Uh, I'm, I, I kind of have... You know, I have input in more departments than I ever would have expected I would. But again, as a as a faculty member who's been there a long time, it kind of comes with the territory a little bit, I think. So um, I feel like right now, for example, is incredibly busy. And it's not just the fault of Zoom. Obviously, it's, um, um, you know, the pandemic means we're, we're revising a lot of things we're doing. But there's there's a lot of stuff that, you know, the uh, that you have to do behind the scenes that, I don't know. It falls on me more than it ever did before, so I, I'm working. Uh, I'm working hard, but um, and obviously not teaching anywhere else, which is fine with me. That's uh, I, I like the idea that I have one place to go. And... So if you if you think if you go back to 30 years when Alan first started teaching at Yale and you started at Juilliard, how has teaching changed, or what are the challenges facing the students today compared to back then? I'd say, I'd say most of us haven't changed much, but, <laughs> but I don't know so much about Julia, but a place like Yale doesn't change much, you know? I mean, it's kind of stuck in its way and it does what it's always done. The kids have changed tremendously, I think. You know, How so? I, I, only, I only taught graduate students, so I've just masters. Most of them only stayed two years because the doctorate was incredibly hard to get into, so they usually went elsewhere for a DMA if they were in that ballpark. And the two-year thing, um, you know, it's just interesting because they used to go, they didn't ever worry about their future until about 
middle of their second year, <laughs> maybe about January, they said, oh, man, you know, I'm out of here in May. What am, what am I going to do? Now, the first question they ask in their first, in their first year of grad school is like, what am I going to do when I'm done with this? You know, this the worry about the future for these kids is, I think, changed a lot over the years. And the kids are, I think, fortunately, I mean, Yale was, uh, fortunately for me, because I never played an orchestra in my whole life, it was not an orchestra school. So we got people who were interested in other things, in freelance and maybe chamber music and early, sometimes a little early music, but, but it was not an orchestra jock school at all. And the entire faculty is that way at Yale. I mean, there's, there's almost nobody on the faculty whose major job has been in an orchestra. So uh, that fit my criteria perfectly, whereas Indiana was a little different, you know, I suppose. But, uh, um, I, you know, I went from Indiana where I was teaching 20, 23 or 4 students to teaching 6, you know. So that, that was a good reason to, <laughs> to come to Yale, too. <laughs> and, 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 and more than that, the first two or three years before they got their big uh, grant so that everybody went to school free. But it was... Uh, I think the kids have just become a lot more diverse in terms of their interests uh, out of necessity. You know, all of, a, all of a sudden, almost all the kids were doing some writing. They were suddenly playing with a flute and bass clarinet instead of a brass quintet. You know, they, I felt that that interest, and certainly not with all the students, but um, I think... Somebody looked at. I used to. I used to go through my list of students uh, sometimes, uh, graduates, and what they're doing, and I, I at one of our you know seminars, and I'd go down this entire list of this person. This, this, and somebody said, well, "There's nobody in an orchestra. You have one person in an orchestra." I said, "That's right. <laughs> like, they didn't come here to go into an orchestra, and when they left here, they didn't want to go, just like me, I guess. Uh, almost nobody has ever ended up in a symphony orchestra, and yet." The number of people that have carved out some kind of a living, many are teaching, of course. They went on to get uh, graduate degrees and, and went into academia. But, you know, got half a dozen kids in New York that are surviving, you know, doing one thing or another. Many that have wandered off. Uh, the best Baroque trumpet player, Tim Will. You remember Tim? Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful Baroque trumpet player. Really was John Thiessen, who's the busiest guy in New York. He was, he was his right-hand man, did everything that John couldn't do did everything there was to do in New York for two years after he finished Yale, and most money he made was about $40,000. In other words, he did every Baroque trumpet job, including San Francisco and Chicago and Boston and New York, and said, I can't make a living doing this. He's in law school now at the University of Minnesota, just finishing law school <laughs> and has a job. In a, he's joining a firm in Ohio next fall. So it's a, a, it's just an interesting bunch of kids you know that he was a Juilliard grad you know who just got totally into the baroque trumpet got got pegged as a baroque trumpet player so when he came to New York he wasn't getting any work on the modern trumpet it was you know really this guy's a baroque trumpet player he probably didn't play his cards right in some ways but but um, he's a really interesting kid very bright you know he got got interesting kids at Yale I love teaching there they're just an interesting bunch so you know, that, I'd say that that's one way they've changed a lot, I guess, is that their interests are just much, much more diverse than they were when I started, for sure. Yeah. Don't you feel that way, right? Well, it's it's really it's different at Juilliard. I, I, first yeah. of all, I do agree with you that um, 
the students I find are uh, much more um, concerned about a smooth career path or how they're going to have a career path. Uh, at least it seems that way to me. They, it comes up frequently, and um, uh, again, I just I think that's different than certainly different than when I was coming out of school, but I think even different than it was in the '70s and '80s when maybe maybe the field absorbed more people more easily than it does today. Uh, but I, I teach a um, I teach this thing called the Brass Departmental Seminar at Juilliard, and it's for the seniors and first year grad students, brass players. So generally, I have about a dozen in the class. And uh, it's basically a business of music class, so um, we don't, you know, talk about embouchures or, you know, practicing or anything. We talk about, uh, well, we had two classes so far this, this term, uh, um, and the first one was like just looking at what's out there in the business, different jobs, how they work, how you get them, uh, you know, going sort of right down the list, orchestra this, that, and the other. Um, then the other day, uh, just a couple of days ago, we looked at um, the Ixum Guide to Orchestras, which has you know, 50 orchestras that belong to Ixum, all the contract considerations in them. Uh, we went over resumes. Anyway, so we're just talk talking about that stuff. But the long and short of what I'm describing to you, at the first class, I always ask the class, um, you know, in five years, where are you going to be? What are you going to be doing? Dream, your dream comes true. Where are you going to be? So last year, it was nine of 11 raised their hand and said they're going to be in an orchestra. One said they're going to have a college teaching job, and one didn't know. Uh, this year, pretty much exactly the same numbers. Like I think I have twelve now, and it's basically ten out of twelve are. Uh, you know, I, I I suppose if I if I uh, slanted the question differently, or maybe if I you know worked at it harder, maybe I would get a little more diverse answers. But I, frankly, I don't think so. I think people still uh, brass players still you know at, at Juilliard anyway are looking at. Um, their future being in orchestra, and uh, that may change, you know, I think, uh, and we have some, you know, some great graduates who, you know, the Caleb Hudson's and Brandon Ridenauer's of the uh, of the world uh, came through Juilliard, and they're doing something different, um, but I think for the most part, your rank-and-file brass player orchestra is still the, the direction they're headed, and, and in that way, uh, there's a lot of conformity, you know, there's a lot, the, the students aren't aren't thinking outside the box maybe the way I would maybe like to see them think outside the box. I think they're, well, they seem to be uh, focused on getting an orchestra job. And with that in mind, I think it's, you know, certainly my or other people's responsibility to be teaching them what they need to know to go out and get an audition and get an orchestra job. So, uh, you know, as much as I'd like to say, well, we're doing all kinds of creative things. Um, yeah, there's some, but it's 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 not. Um, it's still very focused on on the orchestra life and getting an orchestra job. I think. So, so what 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 I've got, what I've gotten over the years is that I get the Juilliard rejects. <laughs> I've had three or four in the last ten years, three or four Juilliard students. All of them basically didn't want to play in an orchestra. That's right. Yeah, and and I'm sure Ray recommended maybe you should go see Alan. <laughs> and you know, one is was Tim, the broke trumpet player, who's bailed completely. And Mickey Sasaki, Ray Sasaki's son, who's just yeah. five years in New York, who's actually doing quite well, but just said, "I don't see a future here," and he just went back to Austin to work on a doctorate and be closer to Ray, actually, who's been ill. And he's he's raised or uh, Mickey's very happy. He's down there with a stipend and healthcare, great because mm -hmm. of his doctoral work, you know, and which he had nothing of that when he was in New York City. So he said, "But I make a good move <laughs> at the right time." 
And, you know, Hugo Moreno, who's really very busy in the city, uh, you know, playing shows. He just had West Side Story, which lasted three weeks and then went on, you know, died with COVID. But, uh, you know, so, some guys, John Shadle's down there playing harp and trumpet and ukulele duets in Houston. <laughs> seems to be doing okay, you know, student arrays that came. Uh, it's just, those are the, 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 the Juilliard people that I've gotten have been ones who were just not interested in the orchestra world, and they're not, not many, but almost nobody. I mean, Yale's just a different school. I mean, there's, there's, there's really nobody there whose first priority would be in a symphony orchestra. And, you know, they probably would, they still take auditions. We do all the excerpts, we do excerpts, do the stuff, but uh, they don't win them. So <laughs> I guess there's, there's something to be said that, that I'm not, was not teaching them right, or they, they weren't interested enough to really prepare like they needed to, which I think is also part of the problem. But, so that's just a different, a different bunch, and it's one of the reasons I really, I really enjoyed teaching there. It was not a big number of students and really interesting kids and musically interesting interesting kids. But different, you know, different. Ray, if you think about nine of your students, I think nine out of 11 said that they wanted to play in an orchestra. Would you guess that maybe statistically, maybe two or three of those students would be lucky enough to get a job in an orchestra? What would the other six people be doing? Would they eventually get out of music or would they be able to freelance or? Well, let me qualify one thing. That, so this is a brass class. So in yeah. this class this year, there are uh, three, maybe three trumpeters, maybe four. Uh, okay. So um, okay. when I'm looking at that, I'm looking at, you know, across the board and, and frankly, uh, um, the, in horn and trombone, the, the placement in orchestras are, is really quite high for, uh, coming out of Juilliard or higher hmm. than Probably higher than trumpet. I think uh, I think they place more uh, right out of school than than we have been able to. Um, I think in the trumpet department, uh, well, you know, they go various ways when they come out. I mean, there's certainly still some degree of um, you know going to an area where maybe the orchestra is not uh, full time. Maybe it's some weeks, but in addition to doing the orchestra, there's you know some regional teaching or maybe even a school. Maybe you can even get connected to a school um so i think i think there's a good amount of that that the students it, it's funny when i talk to students who have graduated they all still seem to be in music they might not be in the san francisco symphony or or a, a major you know uh, symphony job somewhere but um they seem to have found their way they seem to be doing it and probably a combination of a lot of different things and and maybe you know it's all a little different everybody has a little different profile of what they end up doing so uh i i Definitely, there are some that that do get out of music, but I don't. I, I don't see it like a you know lock, stock, and barrel. Boom, they're done. They go into something. Else. Not not at all. Um, I think I still see people finding their way somehow, uh, even if they don't get that that orchestra job that is full time and pays everything. Mm-hmm. Well, you got to remember, this is Juilliard, right? Yeah, probably the premier school in the United States. <clears throat> so he's going to also get. Some of the, you know, most of the premier trumpet players in the United States. You're going to lose a couple to Texas and a couple here and there, but, but basically, yeah. you're getting the best players. So their percentage of getting an orchestra job is way, way above. Even people probably from the Cleveland Institute or from New England or from other, you know, it's, it's Juilliard, and uh, that's a, a different level of student basically. We were just talking today about uh, for the orchestra rep class that I that I teach as well. Um, so. Because of the uh, of COVID, 
we, we can't spend a lot of time, when we start in person, we can't spend a lot of time in one room. So we're already talking about we'll be doing playing in a room, but then we'll have a break from the room, and we're talking about some guests or lectures that we want to have in addition. And uh, um, so a name that just flew by me in an email before we, we started this conversation is an oboist who uh, is a Juilliard grad who um, is now in the New York Philharmonic, but interestingly, he... Uh, I can't remember the exact trajectory, but he came out of school. He won an audition for a good orchestra. Um, and then the next audition he took, he didn't even make the cut. And then he won another job, but he didn't make the cut the next time. And then he won the Philharmonic. So it's really, uh, it's interesting to see how, uh, and I'm looking, I, I don't know him personally, but I'm looking forward to him doing the class because I, I want to hear about this, uh, it, you know, how it went for this guy that, um, and, and I think that might be, you know, it might be more the norm than than anything else, you know, uh, uh, where it's up and down. And, and it's true that uh, some people come out and, and uh, or some don't even get into Juilliard and go on to you know, win a job somewhere. I mean, um, uh, you know, we I guess it's maybe two years ago or three years ago, uh, Nathaniel Silberschlag is a horn player who now is principal in Cleveland, who um, his first job, uh, he took the Kennedy Center Orchestra. And um, I, I remember because the New York City Ballet, uh, New York City Ballet would go to the Kennedy Center every year. One year it would be with the New York City Ballet Orchestra, and the next year it would be with the Kennedy Center Orchestra. And it would alternate year to year. We did that for about 20 years. And um, so uh, apparently the Kennedy Center Orchestra was playing, and he, was, uh, he wasn't the principal horn with the Kennedy Center Orchestra. He was the associate horn. And I remember um, somebody was, one of the conductors was, was chatting with one of the bar brass players saying, well, you know, we don't even sometimes get the pr pr principal players, you know, like I, I had the, the new uh, associate horn. I didn't even have the, the principal horn. And yet later that year, he became principal in Cleveland. You know, so sort of kind <laughs> yeah. of like, whoa, you know, you had a, you know, an upcoming superstar, but you didn't have the principal of the orchestra. I mean, it's kind of you never know. You know, you never yeah, know what's looking yeah. out there. It was really interesting. Michael Sachs was talking about him and said he's sort of like a one-in-a-generation type horn player. And I guess he did Mahler's Fifth in Carnegie Hall that was just stupendous. That was his first... He, I remember talking to him about it when he was on his way to Cleveland. It was sort of the first several weeks of the season when he was starting. And yeah. they toured to New York and they did Mahler Five in New York. Uh, he's, uh, yeah, he is one, a, one of a generation, I guess is a really good way to put it. He's just a fabulous player. And very... Um, I remember talking to him about it, you know, very easygoing about it, uh, which, you know, let's face it, I think if you're going to play in an orchestra full time, you better have some degree of thick skin to like, well, it's my job. You know, I go, I play my yeah. job, I go home. You, you, you better do that. If, if you're too connected, I think you, you're going to live, you're going to live in hell the whole time. You know, it's going to be really hard to go week to week, but uh, he, had the, he had the right head for it. No question. Yeah. Well, listen, before we close, um, I'd just like to... Uh, to get your impressions about Summit Brass when, when you played in Summit Brass. And, and for me, Summit Brass seems like it's sort of a midway point between playing chamber music like in a brass quintet and playing in an orchestra section. And so I just wonder if, if either one of you has thoughts about playing with Summit and if the playing style was different or comments on, on playing with the group, which to me always seemed like such a fabulous group. Well, I, I'd, be, I'd be happy to start and just say what a kick that group was. And I know you guys agree with me, but I have to say, uh, you know, we were all considerably younger, but maybe in a way we were all sort of in our prime. We were all at a time when I think we had a, a lot, you know, a lot of flexibility, a lot to give. I think we were all went in with a huge enthusiasm for the group and it showed. I remember those, those summers in, you know, in Keystone, 
how much fun they were and how, uh, you know, the synthesis of sort of let's have a good time, but the level of playing being incredibly high. And, uh, you know, I think you, I, I don't know about you guys, I, I look back at various times in my playing career that certain things that clicked a certain way. I can think of certain times in the ABQ, for example, that clicked a certain way and they're very memorable. But the, those early years in Summit, to me, uh, were really special. And uh, I, I mean, you know, uh, right across the room here, I have a picture of the four of us, you know, with Dave and the four trumpets. And I, I look back at the things we did with such fondness. It was uh, it was great. It was really great. I, I'll never forget it. It will be something that sticks out in my memory, you know, for the rest of my days. Each in its time.